We are picking up, we finished off the story of Sodom and Gomorrah last time we were together. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we were looking at lessons, the previous lesson before that. We had four lessons from Sodom and Gomorrah, and we hit three more. One was, don't fall into the sin of Sodom, which was not just the obvious sexual perversion that they were involved in, but what Ezekiel says, that they were arrogant and self-indulgent. They had no concern for the poor and needy. And it's just a reminder that Jesus says that we need to take up our cross. The Christian life is being willing to suffer and pouring our lives out for others as Jesus did, that we can't have a life that's focused on pleasure or lead to our destruction. Lots of warnings in the scriptures about that. So uh, I got, got some definitely got some feedback that that was uh, challenging. The last two, last two lessons in Genesis were challenging, and so kind of the impl- implication was, Chuck, can you lay off this week? We've had a, we've had enough the last two lessons. We'll see how it goes. I'll I'll try to lay off, but I have I have uh, uh, you know the the other people in the scriptures that uh, they they sometimes they they bring strong lessons with them. So uh, the other one was don't mess with the angels. The angels are powerful. Two angels brought about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the entire surrounding area. Jesus said that he could ask his father to send more than 12 legion of angels when he was attacked. So it's a reminder to us that we're involved in a spiritual battle with great power at the disposal of God and the forces of good. It's a good, healthy reminder for us. And Hebrews 1, of course, says that that angels are sent to minister those who will inherit salvation, which is would be us. Uh, and then the last one was one that I put out there for your consideration. Is to me this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is for, was foreshadowing in many ways the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in A.D. 70, where the righteous few flee the city and then the city is completely obliterated. As a result, and we talked about that after the great crime takes place. So we're halfway through Genesis chapter 19, and many people would want to say, okay, let's skip on to Genesis 22, the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. We're not going to do that. There are three rather disturbing short stories in between here and there, and we're going to look at all three of them. These stories, people would skip ahead. For, for one thing, they're disturbing stories. For, for, for another thing, it's, it's a little difficult sometimes to find out, well, what are we supposed to get out of these stories? Is there something in here for us or not? And I hope that will just cause us all to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, there are things we may learn about God, how he operates, that he does things differently than we do. He operates differently than, than we would. Uh, it, it, and so, just just to observe observe who God is and how he how he works. Uh, one of the three stories actually is very important to understanding one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. We'll get into that. But as, as letter Paul, this one of these three three overlooked stories is is really foundational in understanding one of Paul's letters, which is misapplied in Protestant circles a lot. So we'll talk about that as well. The three disturbing stories. Here's why they're disturbing. One involves incest. One involves a form a, a form of adultery, polyandry, where a woman ends up having two husbands. A man gives his wife away. 
And the, and the third story is about child abandonment, of a parent abandoning their child to, to uh, the dangers of uh, potentially death. So the, the, the three disturbing stories. The first one, of course, is the two daughters of Lot have sexual relations with their father in a cave, and they both conceive. That's in Genesis 19. <clears throat> in Genesis 20, Abraham says that Sarah is his sister, implying no more than his sister, just his sister, not his impl- implications he's not his wife. He, 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 and and he, another man, a king, takes her as his wife. And then the third story, Abraham sends away his own son, his own flesh and blood, Ishmael, and her mother out into the desert, where they almost die of dehydration. So this is their three disturbing stories, um, and uh, we're just going to take take them take them take them as they come here. First one, Genesis chapter nineteen, story of a lot and his daughters. We're going to pick up. Lot and his two daughters have escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah has been destroyed. And we'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 30. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Then Lot with his two daughters went up from Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave with his two daughters. Now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we might raise up seed from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the elder went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. It happened on the next day, the elder said to the younger, Indeed, I slept with our father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may raise up seed for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger went in and slept with him, but he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot conceived by their father. Then the elder bore a son and called his name Moab, saying, He is from my father. He is the father of the Moabites to the present day. Now the younger also bore a son and called his name Ammon, saying, The son of my family, and he is the father of the Ammonites to the present day. Romans 15.4, Paul says, Everything that was written in the past is written to for our learning. So what in the world can we learn from a story like this? Well, one possible lesson is don't get drunk because uh, all kinds of bad things can happen when you're under the influence of alcohol, even at the hands of someone you trust. You could do something that will have enormous consequences going for years and years into the future. So that's a very, very superficial lesson right there. Noah, of course, also got drunk, so just, just that's, that's one obvious one. Another lesson... Why is this story in here? This story presents the origin of the Moabites 
and the Ammonites, who will appear again and again throughout the Old Testament. So this is, this is here, it's historical background for two people who play a very interesting role for good and for bad in the history of, of, uh, of Israel, God's people. Now, I have a problem right here, which, which I'm probably going to mess up, but I'll, I'll, I'll try is the, to my very, very best. Keeping straight the Amorites and the Ammonites. Okay, there are two people that, first of all, they sound just like each other. Second of all, they lived at the same time. And then the third thing is they live right next to each other. And there are several places in the Bible where in the same chapter it's talking about the two groups of people, the Amorites and the Ammonites. And for those, those of us who tend to shop at discount food grocery stores, the, uh, this reminds me of the, the famous battle that took place in the market basket chain between Arthur T. DeMula and his arch enemy Arthur S. Demula. So there, there, there's the, the two people that have this. They have virtually the same name, but they're totally different people. And how do, how in the world do you keep them straight? Those of us, those of us from uh, from Boston, to appreciate that. Or, or when I take the train down to New York City, I grew up in New Jersey, and the first stop on Amtrak after New York is Newark. And, of course, the way people pronounce it so fast on the train, it's New York and Newark. So the, the two sound almost exactly like each other, and I'm sure people have gotten messed up over time because they're right next to each other, and the name sounds almost the same. So that's the thing, the Amorites and the Ammonites. So I've had to do some digging to get my own, my own head straightened out. The Amorites were Canaanite people, and remember in Genesis chapter 15, we, we talked about this, that God told Abraham that his people would be 400 years in another nation because the sin of the Amorites was not yet filled up. So this is a people that existed before the time of Abraham, the Amorites, they're Canaanite people, and that, that in the future uh, that his people would come there as opposed to the Ammonites, who were the descendants of Lot. When, when God's people are moving up through the, the wilderness and into the promised land, one of the great victories that they had was over Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And uh, so they had to defeat the Amorite people who lived on the east side of the Jordan River. Well, guess who else lives on the east side of the Jordan River? Not only Amorites, but the Ammonites that live right next to each other. So there's a whole discussion in, in Deuteronomy where uh, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 2, when you go into the promised land, he says, don't mess with, don't take the land of the Moabites or the Ammonites because they're descendants of Lot. In Genesis chapter 2, he says, don't take their land. He says also, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, don't take their land either because I have given them an inheritance. So these are the, the people descended from Lot and from Esau are given their own inheritance even though they're not necessarily part of the kingdom of God here. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, read verses 8 and 9, just to keep these people straight. 
Deuteronomy 2, 2 verses 8 and 9, it says, Then we passed beyond our brethren, the sons of Esau, who dwelt in Seir, along the road to Arabah, from Eloth and Ezion-Geber. And we turned and passed along the desert road toward Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not be at enmity with Moab or wage war with them, for I will not give you any of their land as inheritance, because I gave Ard to the sons of Lot to inherit. Mm. And then verse, going down to verse 16, So it was when all the men of war died from the midst of the people, then the Lord spoke to me, saying, Today you shall pass by the borders of Moab at Seir, and you shall draw near the sons of Ammon, but do not be at enmity with them or wage war with them. For I will not give you any land of the sons of Ammon as an inheritance, because I gave to the sons of Lot as an inheritance. So in the same chapter where he says, don't take the land of the Ammonites, then he talks about the Amorites on the other hand. So it's, it's an issue right there. So Moses defeats the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, and gives their land east of the Jordan to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh before they cross over, the, the Israelites cross over the Jordan River into the rest of the Promised Land. Now, the confusion to me between the two people comes up again in Judges chapter 11. There the Ammonites, who were descendants of Lot, are attacking Israel. And God raises up the judge Jephthah to to attack the Ammonites and defend them. And Jephthah tries to explain to the people, this is this may sound kind of crazy, but Jephthah explains to the people, he, he says to the, the Ammonites, the descendants of Lot who want to attack Israel, he said, look, we didn't take your land, we took the land of the Amorites, He's telling the Ammonites, we didn't take your land, we took the land of the Amorites, so don't bother us. But not only were the two nations right next to each other, but apparently there was some question about exactly who owned whose land. So it's, it's, uh, it's very easy to get these two groups of people confused with each other. Now the Moabites, on the other hand, there's a very bad association with the Moabites, the other descendants of Lot. In the book of Numbers, there's a story where the people fell into sin. I don't know if you remember. What, what, are, the, what are the Moabites associated with? In the Old Testament, in Numbers 21, the Moabites see how the Israelites had defeated Sihon, the king of the, the Amorites, and they come up with a plan. And they say, well, let's hire... Balaam to put a curse on them because whoever Balaam blesses God blesses and whoever Balaam curses God curses so the Moabites and the Midianites hire Balaam to put a curse on God's people of course Balaam doesn't do that but he does something equally as bad he, he ends puts the curse on the Moabites <clears throat> right he, he yeah he doesn't curse God's people but what he does is he works to have the Moabite women seducing the Israelite men. And it talks about that in Numbers 25. Let's read that. 
So these are these are all people descended from this incestuous event in the cave, the two nights. Numbers 25, verse 1. Now the Israel Israel remained in Satin, and the people were defiled by committing fornication with the daughters of Moab. They invited them to the sacrifices of their idols, and the people ate their sacrifices and worshipped their idols. So Israel consecrated themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord was very angry with Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the rulers of the people and make a public example of them. For the Lord, that the anger of the Lord's wrath may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the tribe of Israel, Let each of you kill any member of the household who was consecrated to the Baal of Peor. So the Moabite women got the Israelite men to get involved in sexual immorality and idol worship and worshiping their God. So what does this tell you about what happened to the Moabites after this time? They became completely corrupt and depraved, and here they are a massive thorn in the flesh to God's people. Paul talks about this example in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking to Christians. And he says, don't get involved in sexual immorality like some of those people did with the Moabites. And in one day, over 20,000 of them were killed. So there's a lesson from that for all time. But the Moabites were involved in that. So it tells you that they're sexually immoral They are corrupt, they're depraved, and they're worshiping other gods. Uh, So that's what happened. Now, on the other hand, as bad as these people were, there's something good that came out of the nation of Moab. Can you think of anything good that came out of the Moabites? Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Let's look there. So out of this corrupt and depraved nation, descendants of Lot is the basis for the story of Ruth. I'm going to read Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land, and a man went from Bethlehem of Judah to sojourn in the country of Moab, and his wife and his sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves wives of the women of Moab. The names of one was Ruth, uh, was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years, then both Malon and Kilion died. So the women, women survived her two sons and her husband. So, uh, and then the story goes on from there in uh, verses 15. So Naomi's husband dies, her two sons die, and she's left with her two daughters-in-law who were both Moabite women. And she encourages them to go back to their own people and... Um, Orpah decides to go back, but Ruth refuses to, and she stays with her mother-in-law. Verse 15, Naomi said to Ruth, Look, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not ask me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. So 
For some reason, this this verse is is read a lot at weddings, which I don't fully understand. I don't fully get that. Or or it's it's used as an example of absolute loyalty of one person to another. But there's more to it than that. She says, the mother-in-law says, go back to your people and go back to your gods. And she says, I'm not going to do that. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So she's not going to go back to her God. She's been exposed to the God of Israel, and she's not going to abandon it. And I really love also uh, when Boaz, her future husband, first runs into her, he has his first encounter with her, and he's heard he's heard what what she's done in, in st- sticking by her, her mother-in-law. In verse 12, it says, May the Lord, this is in chapter 2, Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, May the Lord repay your work, and may a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So he recognized, you've come under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. This Moabite woman had abandoned her gods and came under the wing of the one true God, the God of Israel, and that God, he, he blessed her for that. And ultimately, of course, she not only becomes his wife, but she becomes basically the great-grandmother of King David. All the kings of Judah are descended from her, and Jesus ultimately is descended from her as well. And she's mentioned prominently in the genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, this Moabite woman. So the lessons that I get out of this is, think about this, not only is Jesus descended from Abraham, he's also descended from Lot, just as much as he is from Abraham. He's descended from Lot and Lot's oldest daughter, from that bizarre relationship that took place in a cave, Jesus is a direct lineal descendant of that, which I never really thought about it that way before. So one of the things that, that a couple of lessons I learned from this, one is no matter where you come from, no matter how corrupt and depraved your background has been, that if you put yourself under the wing of God by faith, that God can use you to do incredible things. It doesn't matter what your people were like beforehand. So she's a great example of that to me, Ruth, and, and just God, God used her in an incredible way. Also, the sovereignty of God. This is the sovereignty of God. Some people's attitude to the sovereignty of God is that God controls all the details of everything. You know, he, he decides you're going to be lost. He's going to decide you're going to be saved. The sovereignty of God, as I see over the sweep of the scriptures, is that God uses everything ultimately to achieve his purposes over time. He doesn't override our free will. But God's sovereignty is he will use even people's sin to bring about greater things. You think about it, he used David's sin with Bathsheba, which is horrific, leading to him marrying Bathsheba, through whom came Solomon and all the future 
future kings. Judas sinned with his daughter-in-law Tamar in Genesis chapter 38, which was basically, he was involved in the sin of prostitution with her. Produces Perez, another forerunner of David and Jesus. And then Lot's illicit union with his eldest daughter ends up producing the Moabites from whom comes Ruth. So God, in his sovereignty, uses all of the sins of mankind. They don't stop the purposes of God over time. So I learned something here about the sovereignty of God. Let's continue in Genesis. Genesis chapter 20. is Another uh, story on the surface is rather disturbing. Read verses, verse, verses 1 to 7. Now Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and there journeyed among, sojourned among the Gerarites. Then Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife, lest at a given time the men of the city should kill him because of her. Now Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not come here, and he said, O Lord, will you destroy an ignorant and just nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And did not she say to me, he's my brother? I did this thing with a clean heart and righteous hands. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clean heart, and I spared you that you might not sin against me. Therefore, I did not allow you to touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, rest assured, you shall die you and all who are yours. <clears throat> now, uh, gr- growing up in New Jersey, you know, and, and living in Massachusetts, one of the things I get feedback all the time is, Chuck, you're incredibly <coughs> blunt. People from New York and New Jersey tend to be blunt. Uh, we grow up, we grow up in a tough area, and so we don't, uh, you know, we we don't uh, gener- generally not known for our pleasantries, or our diplomacy, or you know, nicey nicing around. We just kind of get right to the point and say what's on our mind. So, so we really can relate to the passages like this. So God shows up, and His icebreaker to Abimelech, who's obviously from a tough, tough land. His opener is. You are a dead man. <laughs> so, to, get, to get his attention, he's dealing tough with the tough guy. Okay, you're a dead man. You're, you're, you're toast. You're done. So that, that's his icebreaker in the discussion. So what do we make of this? Abraham goes again with the she is my sister story, which we first saw back in Back when when he was in Egypt, he did the same thing a few chapters earlier in Genesis. So, what do we do with this? What's Abraham doing here in basically abandoning his wife to this violent nation uh, king? Abraham's supposed to be the father of faith. What's he doing? He's afraid of a local king. He abandons his wife and lets the king take her as his own wife. And he's deceptive 
on top of that, saying, well, kind of impl- he's not lying, but he's totally misleading, and he's telling her to mislead the king also. Now, he had just seen Sodom and Gomorrah wiped out by God, and he had just, within a few months, God, God had said to him, I'm going to come back to you, and Sarah is going to have a son. And so he feels like he needs to pawn her off to another king, to protect himself. So that doesn't look like the father of faith is, is, is in a shining moment right here. Now let's turn let's now let's turn our gaze on to Sarah. Okay. This is the one that Peter holds up as the example in the Old Testament of what a married woman is supposed to be like. Isn't Peter the one in Acts chapter 4 who said we must obey God rather than men? So what are we to do with that? What's, where's Sarah in this as far as being a righteous woman or an example? And then on the other hand, what did Abimelech do that was wrong? Anyway, I mean polygamy is acceptable at this point in time. Why is so God so hard on him? Why does he say you're a dead man? He... he The king comes back and he says, look, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. This woman here, she said, he's my brother. He said, she's my sister. I have clean hands and it is. What are you getting down on me for? So it seems like everything's backward here. How do we make sense of the story? Let's continue the rest of the story. Verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. So this is after he wakes up from the dream, where God says, if you don't give her back, I'm going to kill you and everyone else here. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you brought on me and on my kingdom such a great sin? You've done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Again, Abimelech said to Abraham, What possessed you to do this thing? Abraham replied, Because I thought surely the worship of God is not in this place. They'll kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she truly is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not of my mother. And she became my wife. So it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's father's house, I said to her, This righteousness you shall do for me. Now that's an unusual Mm -hmm. Uh, unusual use of the word righteousness, but this is the same righteousness in the New Testament. It's, I'm reading from the, the Testament, the Septuagint. That's exactly what it says. This righteousness you shall do for me. In every place we enter, say of me, she is my brother. That's righteousness? Verse 14, that's, that's obviously me, not the, the scripture. Back to the scripture, verse 14. Then Abimelech took 1,000 pieces of silver, sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. Thus Abimelech said to Abraham, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then Sarah, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother 1,000 pieces of silver, which will vindicate your honor before all those with you. But tell the truth in all things. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord God closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So 
how how is what are we to make of this story? What do we learn from this? It seems like the, the wrong behavior is getting punished and and the wrong behavior is getting rewarded here superficially. Well, I'm trying trying to sort this thing out in my own mind. So first thing is Abimelech was a godless, violent man in a nation of people who had no reverence or respect for the Lord. That's one fact that comes out of this, although he didn't didn't think he was committing adultery in that situation, but that's who he was. The second thing is God considered Abraham to be his guy. He says, he's a prophet. He's one of my men here. You're messing with one of my guys. I'm reminded of of Psalm 37. Just God's attitude. David expressed this, but this captures it more to me than a lot of other places in Scripture. I'm going to start reading the whole whole psalm, but I'm going to start reading in, in Psalm 37, starting verse 17. And those who have the, uh, the Septuagint-based Bible, it's in Psalm 36. For the arms of the sinner shall be shattered, but the Lord supports the righteous. The Lord knows the ways of the blameless, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in evil time. In the days of famine they shall be filled, but the sinners shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord altogether, when they glorify and exalt themselves. The sinner borrows and will not repay. However, a righteous man is compassion and gives. Those who bless him shall inherit the earth, but those who curse him shall be utterly destroyed. The steps of a man are guided right by the Lord, and he shall desire his way. When he falls, he shall not be broken to pieces. For the Lord supports him with his hand. I was young, but indeed I grew old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And this is, this is uh, and he, and David goes on and on here, but basically, he's saying, look, those who are righteous, who are following the Lord, God takes care of them. And those who aren't, in his own time, in his own way, God takes care of them too. And I think that's what's going on here, is Abraham's God's, God's guy. He's a righteous man. And so God is just, God's out to protect him. And he's going to protect his life and protect what he does. And isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33? When you don't worry about all these things, you seek first his kingdom, you seek first his righteousness, and all these things will be taken care of. If you are a righteous person, if you're living in obedience to God, If you're one of God's people, he'll protect you. He'll take care of you. David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Somehow, someway, God will take care of you. The other thing in Abraham's defense, this worked out pretty well in Genesis chapter 12 when he tried it in Egypt. So why shouldn't he do it again here? I mean, think about it. When he did the very same thing in Egypt, Sarah came out completely untouched, Abraham's life was spared, and he became extremely wealthy in the process because the king of Egypt showered all this wealth on him. What happens here? The same thing. So 
Who are we to throw stones at Abraham? It worked great the first time. God worked it all out. He did it again. He, he ran the same play again. And it worked just as well as it did the first time. Okay? I don't know what Abraham was doing when he's there by himself and Sarah is in the house of Abimelech. Maybe he's praying to God. You did it in Egypt. Maybe you can do it again. I don't know what he was praying. But you wonder why did God visit Abimelech at night and not Abraham at night saying, what are you doing? But uh, uh, whatever. It worked the first time. It worked the second time. And Sarah, although we might want to throw stones at Sarah, let's go back and take one more look at what Peter said in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. And I think this will put an exclamation. We hit this once before, but after thinking about this particular episode where she's spending... She's, she's in the household of this other guy, Abimelech, who is, a, who is a, uh, not, a, not a nice person. And she's done exactly what Abraham has told her. Let's think about Sarah one more time in looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some of them do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outwardly, arranging of the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on fine apparel. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, think about, that must have been a pretty terrifying situation. But here's Sarah in the house of this king, who she's just been given to as a wife, and her husband is nowhere to be found. He's, he's not there. And he says, don't give way to terror. And that's a pretty terrifying situation, I would think. But uh, Sarah is held up. She's held up, first of all, as being a beautiful woman. Now, here she was, not just as a younger woman in Egypt, but now she's 90 years old. She's 90 years old, and she's still beautiful. She's still so beautiful that Abraham is worried he's going to get killed by somebody who wants to take her as his wife. So apparently they had more concern about uh, adultery than murder in that, in that land. So she's held up as a beautiful woman. She's a woman who trusted God. Talks about the women who trusted God in the past. And she obeyed and submitted to her husband. This is, a tough, this is a tough one here. She did exactly what her husband asked her to do. And she didn't give way to terror in that situation. Now, I'm not a woman. I'm not a wife. Okay, obviously we don't want to do something that's a clear violation of a command of God. So... You know, I, I don't know how far we're supposed to push this, but Sarah is held up in terms of the heart that she had, 
the spirit that she had and uh, uh, to to an extreme degree in this particular instance. So I have, have there was one more uh, uh, story here before we get into Genesis 22 that I was going to cover, but I think this is probably enough for today, so we'll stop right here. Amen.